turn to Psalm 8. I'll read Psalm 8 and then we'll pray and uh, get into uh, the message together. In Psalm 8 it says in verse 1, Lord, O Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him, a son of man that you look after him? You made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. Lord, oh Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. Let's pray. Father, your name is magnificent. Your name is worthy of praise and And that's why we gather weekly to worship you together because you are worthy of that. You are worthy of our affections, of our emotions, of our our words and of our breath and of our singing. And so we pour out our praise week in and week out. We want you to be glorified. And now today as we come to Psalm 8 and we, we hear reasons for your worth. We hear reasons for for worshiping you, I pray that our hearts would follow. I pray that we would be inspired to worship today as we contemplate the ways in which you show your greatness. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I titled the message this morning, How God Shows His Greatness. You'll see in the Psalms, as we continue to go through the Psalms, a lot of the Psalms, you know, there are different categories of Psalms, and a lot of them are Psalms of praise. They, they teach us about God's majesty and about his his glory and his, his greatness. And they teach us to see his greatness displayed through different means. And, and the means that, that we want to look at in, in Psalm 8 is unique. It, it often goes overlooked, I think, as we consider how God shows his greatness. If I were to ask you, how, how do you know God is glorious? Or how do you know God is great? What does he do to show that? One of the responses you might give is you might, you might point to creation. You might say he's created the universe. He's created the stars. He's created the sun, the planets. He's created the galaxies. He, we just have to look up and see that God is great. But in Psalm 8, we actually are encouraged to move past that to see something else. I want to give you three things that make his name magnificent throughout the earth. Three things that make his name magnificent throughout the earth. Go ahead, and and if you have the handout in front of you, we'll fill in some blanks together. The first couple I'll move fairly quickly through because I I really want to camp out on the third one and spend some time there. So the first one is this. He uses the weak to silence the strong. He uses the weak to silence the strong. Things that make... God's name magnificent throughout the earth. One, the first thing we see in the psalm is that he uses the weak to silence the strong. If you look at the second part of verse one, it says, you have covered the heavens with your majesty from the mouths of infants and nursing babes. You have established a stronghold 
on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. How does God confront his enemies? How does God confront those that oppose him? What tells us right here, the mouths of infants and nursing babes. The, the greatness of God is displayed and that he can take the weakest of people. I mean, there's nothing more weak and fragile than infant babes. There's nothing more There's nothing less threatening physically than than infants. And the Bible tells us that from the mouths of infants and nursing babes, he is able to silence the enemy and the avenger. This is to his glory. We're going to see the psalmist build upon this idea of how God displays his greatness in using the weak things of creation. But let's just just sit on this one for a minute. When, you know, if when somebody has to confront an adversary, when somebody has to confront an enemy, they, they often want to display their greatest strength. You know, you, you see two guys that get about to get into a fight, you, also, you often see them stand up kind of tall and start to look bigger, try to make themselves... Look, look, look bigger, uh, unless they're so secure in their ability to win that they actually want to make themselves look weaker. And sometimes you, you'll hear guys get real cocky, like, man, I'll fight you with my hands tied behind my back. They'll say things like that. They're, they're trying to show, I don't even, I don't even need my, my greatest weapons to take you on. God is, God is so magnificent his greatness is so evident that he approaches his enemy and he approaches his adversaries using the mouths of infants and nursing babies. He doesn't need to use the strongest weapons he has available. He can defeat his enemies with infants. It's no big deal to him. It's easy for him. It's light work for him. It's it's not a challenge. This is how he shows his greatness. He shows his greatness. He, he, he makes his, his magnificence known throughout the earth through choosing to use the weak to silence the strong. And we see this all throughout God's plan of redemption. From Genesis to Revelation, God always takes the weak and uses them to silence the strong. When he wanted to deliver his people Israel from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. They lived under the most powerful empire on the earth at the time. He chose Moses, a guy who could barely speak, a guy, a guy who, who had nothing impressive about him. When he went to Moses and, and he said, Moses, I want you to go and be my deliverer. Moses said, well, I can't even talk. I don't talk right. I can't go before Pharaoh, and yet God used him. He took him before Pharaoh. We see this continue throughout God's story of redemption. When Israel needed a king, God overlooked every member of David's household that looked like a king and chose David, the boy, the one who who on the outside looked the least like a king. And he uses the weak 
to silence the strong. When Jesus came to the earth, he came himself as an infant and as a nursing baby. And through that infant and through that nursing baby, he conquered sin and death. He makes his name magnificent throughout the earth by choosing the weak to silence the strong. Number two, he shows his magnificence. He makes makes his name magnificent throughout the earth in that he cares about us. Forgive the simplicity of this point, but I really didn't want to try to complicate it. I, I hope the simplicity of that statement is enough to help us really stop and think about what is being said here. How does God make his name magnificent? Through the creation uh, of galaxies, through the display of beautiful sunsets, through the the power of a hurricane. Yes, he, he shows his might. He shows his magnificence in all of those things. But above all of them, he makes his name magnificent throughout the earth in that he cares for us. The psalmist says, when I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after you ever felt that way? Have you ever been underneath the stars, away from the lights of the city and away from the distractions and you just looked up and you saw the glory, the magnificence of the universe that we are floating around in and thought, wow, what am I? You see these, you see these stars, you see these, catch glimpses of these planets that are just unfathomable distances away, things we can't even get our head around. And we know this is the tip of the iceberg. We know that there's so much more that we haven't even begun to explore yet. Or you see an an image of the earth from space and you can hardly, you can hardly even perceive the continents. You're like, where, where am I on this? And then you realize I'm just one amongst seven billion human beings. And yet God knows me. He cares. I see the heavens, the psalmist says. I see the work of your fingers, of your hands, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you remember him? What are, what are we? What is the son of man that you look after him. The, the son of man is a phrase that's often used in, in, in scripture to, to really make man low. Why does God care about us? He cares about us. That is a reality. He cares about us in order to make his name magnificent throughout the earth. Or perhaps not to make, maybe that's not the right way of thinking of it, to display that his name is magnificent. When God wants to show off, when God wants to show how great he is, 
he displays his care for mankind. And that speaks to the greatness of God in a way that the rest of creation cannot. When we consider that God cares about man, when we consider how, significant, how insignificant we are in the scope of the universe, and yet he cares for us, that's incredible. That shows the magnificence of his name. That shows his goodness and his glory. Human life is something we don't even value that much as human beings. We see this all the time. Human life is, is disposable. You hear, you hear about people who have died and, you, and you, you see tragedy happen and you just pause for a brief second, if that, and think, oh my, that's, that's terrible. And you move on. Human life is, is not nearly as valuable to us. It's not nearly as treasured by us as it is to God. Who cares? We talked about that, I think it was last week. His care for us. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So, so, so far we see that God makes his name magnificent throughout the earth in that he uses the weak to silence the strong. He cares about us, human beings. I mean, arguably an insignificant part of his creation. I, I hear this argument from, from atheists from time to time too. You mean to tell me that uh, in this huge, vast universe that God cares about a few billion people living on one planet? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what the Bible teaches us. So, so what is the purpose of all of that other space and universe? Well, it is there to display his glory as well. But God is, is showing his magnificence. He's showing his greatness and his goodness on the earth in that he cares about you and he cares about us. <coughs> Excuse me. This is where it keeps building, okay? So he chooses the weak. He uses the weak to silence the strong. He cares about us. And then these two things come together in the third part of this psalm, you'll see on the handout, he has chosen us to carry out his work. He has chosen us to carry out his work. Now just think about those three things before we get too, too far past this because we're, I'm, I'm gonna really kind of dig into this one a little bit and we're gonna go to other places in scripture, but I want you to hear Psalm 8. This psalm that begins, Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth? If you're gonna start with a statement like that, then you need to be prepared to back it up. God, your name is magnificent everywhere that I look. How so? How is his name magnificent? His name is magnificent throughout the earth in that he uses the weak to silence the strong. He does not think the way we think. He does not choose the strongest among us to defeat the weak. He flips it around. He shows how great he is and that he can defeat, he can silence his enemies with the mouths of infants. How else is he great and magnificent among the earth? He is magnificent in that he cares about us. 
He, is, he has all of the universe under his sovereign domain and rule, and yet his attention is upon this tiny planet in this tiny little speck of his creation, and on that planet, he is focused on human beings. Now you might say, well, that sounds like something human beings would say. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? But if we believe this is the word of God, if we take this as the word of God, it's not just human beings who have said this, it's God himself who has said this. This is what he has made known about his creation, that he cares about us. But here's where it gets deep. He not only cares about us, he has chosen us to carry out his work. Let's look at verse five. In verse five, it says, you made him little less than God. And that's a phrase, we don't need to get into it. it I think that's a, a fair translation. Um, it's a difficult phrase to translate. Uh, you'll see it translated differently in different translations. Um, but the point is, he's somewhere below God. Man is somewhere below God and crowned him with glory and honor. What has God, ask yourself this question, what has God done to crown man with glory and honor? Verse six gives us the answer. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. God has chosen the weak, because, and, and, and displayed his care for us in that he has chosen us to carry out his work. And when I say us, I mean humanity as a whole. This is what God has done. He has made human beings a little less than God, this is difficult to even say. It feels like it should say like a lot less than God, right? <laughs> but that's not the point of the psalm. The point of the psalm is, is, is not to help us understand how close we are to being gods. The point is that we are not God. We are less than God. And that is one of the most important things to understand about yourself and about life and about the world, that there is a God and you are not him and therefore you are under him, and you submit to him, and you obey him. He has, you have made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor by making him the ruler over the works of your hands. The work, the next thing you see on the handout, the work that, that he has chosen us for begins with creation, but then extends to redemption. So this is what I wanna do with the rest of our time. I want to take these three, these three points from Psalm 8, and I want to show you how this is played out in Scripture and how God has chosen mankind to carry out his work, beginning with creation but extending to redemption. And so we've got to go back to creation in order to do this. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. If you have a Bible in front of you, I think it's worth turning to Genesis chapter one, because we're gonna, we're gonna read a decent uh, passage here. In Genesis chapter one, starting in verse 26, 
Again, we want, to, we want to explore how the work that he's chosen us for begins with creation. I'll show you that here in Genesis 1, but then extends to redemption. And all of this under the idea of God making, making his name magnificent throughout the earth. How is God making his name magnificent throughout the earth? This is how. In Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came and then morning the sixth day. So this, obviously, is the, the original account of creation. The six, uh, seven days, if you count the day of rest, the, the, the six or seven days of God creating the universe and putting things into order. When God creates the universe, he speaks everything into existence. The Bible says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. This is how he creates. Well, and we've talked about this recently, so I'm gonna spend a lot of time on it. But when God creates man, he, he, changes his, the, he changes up what he's doing and he forms man from the dust of the earth and he creates him, as the Bible says here explicitly many times, in his own image. And having created man in his image, he makes him in charge of his creation. He puts man in charge. He says, take, take my creation, cultivate it, bring out its potential, improve upon it. That was always God's intention, that, that creation would not stay stagnant, that, that the, the world that he had placed man in would not remain the same, but that we would take it and subdue it and, and rule over it and make it what, what God intended for it to be, to bring out its potential but we have to deal with this idea of being created in the image of God what does it mean that we are created in the image of God Have you ever thought about that a lot of us have maybe some of us haven't no big deal if you haven't we're going to think about it together today to be created in the image of God that's something that sort of I don't want to say it, it doesn't baffle theologians. It occupies theologians. It's, it's something that pe a lot of people think about and give answers to and contemplate and look throughout, you know, search the scriptures for, for evidence of, of what it might mean. And really, there's typically three general ideas that, that come to the surface. You see these on the handout. What does it mean that we are created in the image of God? There are three potential options. One, we look like God physically. That's probably the first one that comes to mind for most of us. Maybe not, but it seems naturally when, when we hear these words, 
He created man in his image. We think of physical likeness. The problem with that is that in all descriptions of God's physical likeness in in the Bible, that doesn't seem to fit real well, okay? But it's a possibility. It's a possibility. There are many things perhaps we can't understand now about God, um, but let's look at other options. Another option would be that we are rational beings like God. A lot of people conclude that what it means to be created in the image of God is that we are rational beings, unlike all of the other creatures, which are not rational beings. They move and they operate based on instinct. And we have the ability to think and to contemplate and to rationalize and to make decisions based on things other than instinct. And so some would conclude that maybe that's what's different about man from the rest of creation. He, he has this cognitive ability that, that somehow is similar to the way God works. And that's certainly true. But there's a third option that I think is most significant. And by the way, all of these may have some truth in them. It's not like there's one right answer. I think the idea of being created in the image of God probably is multifaceted. There's probably a lot more to it than certainly I'm gonna be able to um, articulate. But, but there's a third option that I want us to consider today, and that is some have proposed that to be created in the image of God means that we represent God by doing his will. We represent him by doing his will. The reason I think that idea has merit is because in this original count in Genesis chapter one, and in other places in scripture, when, when the idea of man being created in the image of God comes up, it's immediately and intimately tied to the work that God has given him to do among his creation. That there, there's a, the Hebrew word behind uh, being created in the image of God is the word selim, which has has. Uh, kind of this idea in it that to be created in the image of God is to be created as his representative. That's what an image is, right? An image, if you were to take a picture of me, then that, that picture you could show to other people and say, this is Fred. Well, it's not Fred. It's a representation of me. And, and, and the idea that we as human beings are created in the image of God likely has that thought behind it that we are representations of God, not just in physical likeness, probably not primarily in physical likeness. I mean, if we look like God, does God have like seven billion heads or what? Like we we all look different. But primarily through representation of authority and representation of occupation, God has given us He has given us control of his creation, and he says, now do my will. Do my will. That's what he says. If we go back to Genesis 1, verse 28, let me go to 27. God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. If God had in mind that creating him in his image was primarily about a physical representation of him, 
or if God creating man in his image was primarily about them being rational beings like him, then the rest of this chapter makes no sense whatsoever. However, if God's concept of creating us in his image was that we would represent him by doing his will, then what follows makes perfect sense. God creates man in his image, and then immediately after that we read, and he blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant. This will be food for you. Everything uh, everything in creation is, is yours. In verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. I'm wanting to make the case here that you are created in the image of God, and his intention for that is that you represent him on the earth by doing his will. That's what it means to be human. To be human is to be a representative of God himself by doing his will on the earth. Now, as we said earlier, that begins with creation. In Genesis 1, this is before the fall. This is before there is any need for redemption. And so it begins with creation. And so God places man on the earth to cultivate it. He, he, he places man in a garden. What is, what's significant about a garden? A garden represents work. A garden represents the need to apply effort to improve something. You take seed and you turn them into consumable fruits and vegetables. That's, that's what happens in a garden, ideally. Then sometimes the deer come along and they eat the plants before you get to eat the, the harvest and things like that happen. But, but the idea is that we are to cultivate what God has created. And what that means is that your work, let's fast forward at least thousands of years, we fast forward to today, you're like, well, I no longer live in a garden. A lot has changed. Uh, we live in a radically different world than then. But the same work is still taking place. You are created in the image of God as his representative on this earth, along with all of humanity, to bring his will about on the earth. That makes your work eternally significant. Like whatever you do for a job, that matters in God's creation. You're like, well, you don't know what I do for a job. I, I pick up trash or, you know, I, I do this or that. I'm, all the ideas I'm thinking of, I probably shouldn't say out loud. But you do things that seem insignificant to you. But, but picking up trash is actually fulfilling God's command to steward his creation and to cultivate his creation. Because if you've ever been somewhere where they don't pick up the trash, God's creation, the potential of creation is not being realized. It is, it is actually being disintegrated. And it, and it not only looks bad, but it is bad. That's not God's design for his creation. His design for his creation is that it's beautiful and that it displays his glory and that it's ordered, that it's not chaotic. And that's the responsibility that he gives to us. 
when you mow your grass, when you, when you care for your property, you're actually participating in the work that God spoke to Adam and Eve about in the beginning of creation. This is the world that I've created for you to inhabit. Subdue it. Make it beautiful. Bring about its potential. You know, things like the, the uh, and, and you think, well, okay, well, not just natural things. It's not just about making grass green. Even when we take natural resources and change them to create new things, like we create energy and we create power and we create gasoline to power automobiles and, and things like that, we are cultivating creation. We are unlocking its potential. And we're, we're using it to advance God's work in bringing his creation to, its, to the fulfillment of its potential. So when you work, that's what you're doing. Whatever your job is, like I work in a machine shop, I just make little parts that get sent over to Germany and I don't even know what they do. You're cultivating creation though. You're taking, you're taking something and making something better out of it. That's what God instructs us to do. Now we, along with that, that, that privilege is the responsibility to do that responsibly, to do that to to cultivate the earth in a way that we ensure that it sustains God's original beauty and glory in it. And I know this gets real political. I'm not advocating that we become climate activists or anything like that, but we ought to care about the sustainability of the creation that God has given us stewardship over. That's what he created us to do. He created us to, to bring out the potential to cultivate his creation, to make it everything that it can possibly be. And for that reason, I think things like space exploration are extremely appropriate. People say, why are we going to space? There's people starving on, on earth. Yes, we should work hard to find solutions for people that are starving on earth, and yet, yet God has placed us in his creation. And he said, cultivate it, steward it. Make the most of it. And that's, that's what it means to be man. That's what it means to be created in his image. But a really significant thing happens shortly after all of this begins. And that really significant thing is what we call the fall of man. Not long after God creates Adam and Eve and says, here it is, take it, it's a blank slate. Fill the earth, fill it with people who will work to cultivate this creation. Shortly after that, man rebels against God. The world falls into brokenness. And now not only do we need to steward and cultivate creation, but now we become God's representatives in doing his will through the ministry of the gospel. I got lost in my notes here somewhere. Where are we at? We did the three, right? Every human being is responsible. Did we hit that one yet? Every human being is responsible for helping creation become what God intended it to be, okay? Your work matters. Oh, let me, so let me just give you one more scripture on that. Jot this down in case you wanna refer back to it later. Every human being is responsible for helping creation become what God intended it to be, Colossians 3. That's why in Colossians 3, Paul can say, whatever you do, do it from your heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. 
knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Paul is actually speaking into the context, the subject that he's actually talking about is the subject of slaves and their masters. Now, that, some people freak out that the Bible talks about slavery. It's not, it's not nearly, it's not what they think it is, and it's certainly not what they pretend it to be. Um, everything the Bible says about slavery is actually good. It's actually good, okay? Not, not that slavery is good, but how, it's, I, I opened a can of worms. Worms, get back in here. Um, it's not a big deal, okay, in the Bible. And I, I've preached that before, and I'd gladly preach that again, but that's not what we're talking about today. But I say that so that you understand the context. If Paul is instructing slaves to consider their work not as work done for man, but as work done for God, he's pointing back to this idea that everything we do with our lives is done under this job description that God gave us in the garden when he said, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, cultivate it, steward it, make it the best that it can be. Therefore, your work, regardless of what it is you are doing, is something that you can always do for the Lord. No matter how much you hate your job, no matter how much it seems ridiculous to you, you should go to work tomorrow morning and say, I'm doing what God created me to do. I'm participating in what he intended for my life to be, what he intended for mankind to do. Okay, so that's the work of, of creation and cultivating creation. This is where I, 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 I realized I was lost in my notes. But there is a greater work that we are called to participate in. Because as important as that is, when sin entered into the world, something else became the number one priority. And that something else is God's plan of redemption. Now, that cultivating and stewarding God's creation is no less important. It might even be more important, you can make the case now. But there is something that it supersedes that now in order of importance. And that something is the ministry of the gospel. So the next and the final thing you see on the handout is this. Every Christian is responsible for the ministry of the gospel in this world. So you see how those two points go together? Every human being is responsible for helping creation become what God intended it to be, but every Christian is responsible for the ministry of the gospel in this world. Everybody in here has a responsibility to act among creation as God's representative, to steward and to cultivate what he has created. All of us have that responsibility. Those of us who name the name of Christ and claim to be Christ followers, we have an additional and even more important responsibility, and that responsibility is the ministry of the gospel. What God, when God created us in his image, we became his representatives. And when he recreates us through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we become his representatives of the gospel. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, from now on then we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. 
Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And we quote this sometimes to say, oh, my sins are forgiven and my past, this is my past and all. That's true. But that's not where Paul is taking this. Listen to where he's taking this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When God creates something, he tells it its purpose. When God created man in the Garden of Eden, he said, this is your purpose. I've created you in my image to be my representatives on the earth. I'm putting you in charge. This is what I want you to do. Multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, cultivate it, steward it. When God creates us anew in Christ, he does the same thing. He tells us our purpose. Our purpose is that we have become ministers of reconciliation. He says, my creation has been marred by sin. And now man, who I created to be in an intimate relationship with me, is apart from me because of sin. I'm putting you in charge of bringing him back. He's giving us the responsibility of the ministry of the gospel. And that's for every believer. That's not just for pastors. That's for all of us. Every Christian is responsible for the ministry of the gospel in this world. What does all this have to do with Psalm 8? That's, a, that's an appropriate question. In Psalm 8, it says, Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. And so the question is, we ask the psalmist, why do you say that? How do you know his name is magnificent? We know his name is magnificent because he uses the weak to silence the strong. He cares about us and he has chosen us to carry out his work. God's name is magnificent throughout the earth because he has chosen you and I to be ministers of the gospel, to be ministers of reconciliation. He has given us the responsibility and the opportunity to put things back in order. Remember, that's, that's why I emphasize that he chooses the weak. He chooses the weak. You think, because hopefully your response is, he shouldn't choose me. That's my response too. No, he shouldn't. <laughs> like, we should talk to him about this. Like, God, are you sure this is the plan? But the point is, yes, it's his plan. The point is that he has chosen imperfect, unimpressive, weak, sinful, little new creations and said, 
through my word. I created you the first time to cultivate my creation. And I've created you again. You are a new creation to bring this message of redemption, this message of reconciliation to the world. Paul says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. You are an ambassador for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. Is your life pleading in the midst of this fallen creation? Is your life pleading to be reconciled to God? That's what he wants to do for you. That's what he calls us to. And so we, being the weak ones, being the insignificant ones whom he cares about, being the ones who he has created in his image and recreated in the image of his son to do his work of reconciliation, we cry out with the psalmist, Lord, O oh Lord, how magnificent is your name out the earth.